1: Visions to the COSO ERM framework, which were based on comments by the practitioners. Matt considers the integration of the COSO ERM framework into functional business units, moving to operationalize ERM and organizations, and then we consider how the ERM framework differs yet is complementary to the COSO International, con- excuse me, internal controls framework. Jonathan Armstrong reviews the recently released information that eight. Companies are currently under investigation by the SFO, and whether the SFO is out of control? He then takes a dive into some of the ancillary issues around the Unioil investigation, considering the issues which have arisen in the Wood Amec Group merger, where both parties are under the under SFO investigation. <clears throat> he discusses what you uh, might consider as a merger candidate in this situation. Finally. Armstrong handicaps the upcoming UK election and what it might mean for compliance. Jay Rosen brings his Mr. Monitorship hat and his former Mr. Translation set of eyes to the question of operationalizing your compliance program. He considers how the compliance function can work with other corporate functions to embed compliance into the fabric of an organization, making compliance a competitive advantage. And finally, Mike Volkov examines the FinCEN enforcement action involving Thomas Hadar, the former CCO at MoneyGram. Mike considers the implications for CCOs and whether the case even matters for CCOs. The episode uh, comes in at just around an hour. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you back for another episode of Everything Compliance the top compliance commentator roundtable podcast around. Our Everything Compliance panel is Matt Kelly, founder of Radical Compliance, Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Jonathan Armstrong, uh, partner at Cordery Compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors. So gentlemen, uh, we have had uh, quite a uh, interesting couple of weeks um, in the world but I thought we might focus on the compliance world since uh, we last got together. And, uh, Matt, you've been uh, looking at, thinking about, and frankly writing some very interesting things about the COSO framework. You and I had the chance to uh, visit with that a little bit earlier this week, but I was wondering if you could maybe uh, uh, talk about the COSO ERM framework and how that ties into uh, and is complementary to either the COSO internal controls framework, a general compliance program, or in a direction that uh, maybe I hadn't thought of. So take it away, Matt.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, It's great to be back here, Tom. Hello, everybody. So yes, for compliance, audit, and risk executives, we have a big deal coming along probably within the next month or so by certainly, I think, mid-July. We will have a final new framework from COSO for enterprise risk management. Uh, this has been in the works for i want to say the better part of two years uh, possibly three and uh, this is going to i think over time become a very useful tool for a lot of people in a lot of large enterprises so conceptually the erm framework from coso will be kind of sort of similar to what companies already generally do with coso's framework for internal controls Uh, The internal control framework really is the go-to standard to help manage your Sarbanes-Oxley compliance. This ERM framework, this is going to be able to be used, in theory, much more widely for a whole lot of other bigger risks that your board is probably, um, frankly, more interested in. Uh, We all love good SOX compliance risks, but the ERM framework is going to be designed to handle more strategic risks, operational, financial, and regulatory risks, too. Um, What's it going to be? So like I said, it's very similar to the COSO internal control framework in its structure. It's going to have five basic components, and they will be supported by 20 underlying principles. And it's really intended to help a company focus more rigorously on risk management and risk awareness throughout the whole organization. And what they really want to get away from is the idea that risk management is a phase that you go through or it's a department that somebody else runs, and I don't have to worry about it. Me here, say, in HR or the IT department or the sales department, you know, I do my thing. I want to do it then the risk department risks, manages, tells me what I can do, what I can't, and then I try and do it anyways. So there'll be a lot of how to be much more disciplined throughout the whole organization. Um, I could give one easy example here is one thing the COSO framework wants to help companies do is focus on their objectives and setting objectives much more clearly Um, And then once you have your objective in mind, you kind of reverse engineer, well, what are our risks to not hitting those objectives, and what do we have to do to avoid those risks? It's a little bit of a different approach than a lot of companies. Frankly, they think more like, what are the risks that we want to avoid? Well, we don't want an FCPA violation. We don't want a bad Um, integration after a big merger deal. We don't want um, foreign currency exposure catching us unawares. So let's make sure that doesn't happen. Well, that's really focusing on what you're not doing rather than what do you want to do? Keep your eye on that ball. Now, what might get in the way of doing that, Uh, including things like ethical misconduct, regulatory infractions, whatnot, you know, they might get in the way. How do we make sure that they don't block us from our objectives, but where are we keeping our eye on the ball? So it's a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, I'll give one final example of what I think this framework could do. It's a very good observation from an audit executive I know. He's at a very acquisitive company that a couple of years ago essentially did a huge deal, doubled in size by employee base, by geographic reach, and by product line. This was a big, big deal when they did it. And they had to integrate um, a lot of things. And frankly, this audit executive said, look, you know, the integration was a bit rocky. And we know we're going to ac- acquire more companies in the future. Now I'll be able to go to my board with this framework and say, here's how we think in a more disciplined way to make sure that we don't have rocky integrations in the future, that everybody who wants to do something new will be able to sort of game out what the risks are of doing that poorly and make sure that we don't have those mistakes. Um, you know, I could go on and on, but really that's what it's trying to do. And I think audit executives, risk executives, they'll probably flock to this framework first. Uh, but over time, I think a whole lot of other people, including your board who will want to bake this into every operation you have at your enterprise and compliance officers, you're all going to wind up thinking about this sort of stuff a whole lot more. It's a very good document to have out there.
3: So that's what I got for you.
1: Matt, do you see this as complementary to the internal controls framework, uh, or is this something that you would advocate the uh, compliance professional really take on this framework first um, uh, in lieu of the uh, 2013 internal controls update?
2: Um, No, I wouldn't advocate that. Uh, I, I think it is better to say that this is a bigger, broader approach to the same sort of issues you grapple with, with internal controls. Um, You know, that's very much looking at where are the weak spots in our financial reporting processes, uh, how do we seal those up, and it gets very granular about the types of weakness you might have. So it's the same sort of approach as look at what are your weaknesses and how do you seal them up, but it's much more for everything you might do. you know, and frankly, there is the reality that a lot of companies are already using the internal control framework because SOX compliance has been something you've been dealing with for a long time. And the 2013 framework is very good for that. Um, I don't think people are going to abandon that so much as they're going to start saying, well, how do we scale up these ideas to the other operations the company has? Um, I think boards in particular. Are going to see if they could use that for strategic risks, because companies still make a lot of strategic mistakes, or they don't achieve the the benefits of whatever they were hoping for. Like my friend with uh, the merger that was, you know, eventually it, it went through and it company was integrated, but it was rocky. And it took them longer and probably, I suspect, cost more than they were expecting. So how do you really have a, a rigorous approach to Things you do and the risks around them—that's what this framework's looking for.
1: So, would this uh, would it be fair to characterize this as an attempt to uh, operationalize risk into the individual business, dis- uh, corporate disciplines, moving it down yes. so that uh, everyone's thinking about it both on a tactical and strategic level?
2: Yes, I think so. That's exactly what um, the COSO people want to do, and I think one small but telling uh, gesture that they've made is their original framework had a graphic that featured, you know, on the left were your principles and values and your mission, and on the right was the enhanced performance. And to get from left to right, you went through this rainbow of what the COSO ERM framework was proposing. And then somewhere over the rainbow, you had this enhanced performance and life was great. Well, that was the original graphic idea, and they realized that was a mistake because it conveys this idea that risk management is something you go through and then you get on with your daily life. And like that's not what daily life actually looks like. Risks are always there. You're always managing them. You have no final triumph over risks, and then everything is great. So they've scrapped that rainbow idea for, I don't know what it will look like, but they have described it as a DNA-like structure. So I'm guessing that's some sort of weird double helix thing that I last saw in 10th grade biology class, but you know, your journey through your corporate operations, you're embedding risk awareness and risk management principles into everything everybody does, from HR to IT to compliance to finance to sales and everything else. Now, what is that really going to look like? That's really going to depend on your company and how you think about this framework. But like we said, it's coming out probably in another four to six weeks, and we'll have a much better sense of things then. Uh,
0: Jay or Jonathan, any questions for Matt? And not for me. Sounds an interesting uh, Sounds an interesting approach.
1: Well, uh, Jonathan, I'm, I'm go ahead, Jay.
0: No, I said
4: I'm good to go, So. Continue out forward.
1: Well, Jonathan, we have uh, had some, uh, I thought, pretty interesting developments out of the uh, United Kingdom uh, outside of the election and outside of Brexit, um, where um, the um, two large companies, engineering companies, the Wood Group and Amec, were considering uh, or, or or are, I think, attempting to merge, and it turns out. They are both uh, uh, under investigation from the Serious Fraud Office uh, around uh, Oil. I was wondering if you might uh, unpack that for us and tell us about uh, or at least perhaps give us some guidance on what companies can do in the M&A context uh, around this issue of uh, if your partner or your acquirer even may be uh, under investigation.
0: What does it all mean from your perspective? Yeah, happy to. Um, there's been a lot of activity in the unit oil case at the moment, and it's probably fair both to the SFO and to those uh, accused to say not too much about that, except that some of the individuals concerned and some of the corporations concerned brought uh, judicial review proceedings against the SFO recently, which they lost and which... Uh, as a result the sfo won so that relates to some of the co-op- cooperation activity that the sfo have had with the uh, Monaco authorities and at the same time the sfo have said little but something about the fact that some uh, connected parties are under investigation as well including uh, petrofac but the disclosures relating to both um, uh, Amec A- A- Foster Wheeler and uh, John Wood, uh, and for full disclosure, back in the day, forty years or so ago, my father acted for Fos- uh, worked for Foster Wheeler, um, and um, uh, but, but those allegations seem to uh, be connected to the UNoil investigation, and, and that's something that that both of the corporations concerned have made public rather than the SFO, um, it's fair to say that Unioil denies wrongdoing, and it's fair to say that at this stage, uh, Amec Foster Wheeler and Wood Group do as well. Uh, Amec Foster Wheeler are the target company. They say that they have given some documents to the SFO, and Wood Group, the acquirer, say that they were part of a joint venture which paid Una Oil some money but that they don't consider that to have been a bribe. And I think in many respects, that's the sort of lead into the approach, really. As many of you will know, under the UK Bribery Act, a, a company can be liable for its joint venture partners, and it also has an obligation to stamp out bribery. There's, there's a failure to prevent provision in the legislation. And when we get to merger and uh, and acquisition activity, it's slightly disappointing in that there is a whole principle of the MoJ guidance that accompanies the Bribery Act that talks about due diligence, but most of that talks about due diligence in agents and and uh, uh, sales channel and and things like that. Now, to backtrack slightly, the MOJ guidance only deals with these failure to prevent provisions, and the MOJ isn't the same as the DOJ in the US. The MOJ was the government department that was responsible for putting the Bribery Act on the statute book. It has no role to play in enforcement. So the Serious Fraud Office doesn't have to follow the uh, MOJ guidance, but it's likely to take it into account when assessing whether a company's done the right thing or not. Uh, But principle 4.4 says that organizations need to take special care when entering into some business relationships. Uh, It says that they may need to undertake a thorough due diligence and risk mitigation prior to entering into any commitments. And it says a relationship that carries particularly important due diligence implications is a merger of commercial organizations or an acquisition of one by another. And in this case, both the target and the acquirer, I think, have acted very properly in disclosing the fact that there is this uh, potential blip, let's call it that, uh, uh, when they're going through this transaction so that shareholders of both Organisations are, are are in a state of knowledge whether or not there's any wrongdoing involved. I think it's right that they disclose the fact that this investigation is going on. Um, unlike the US, though, there's th- the options as to what either party can do are somewhat limited. So, and maybe we can have a discussion about this, Tom, because I know you'll be more up to date with this than I am. But from my distant perspective, we've always looked at the Halliburton opinion, which I know is somewhat old now, which set out some guidance when, when one organization is acquiring another of the type of things that it might need to do post-acquisition if it's unable to do them pre-acquisition. And I think Halliburton came from a somewhat peculiar set of circumstances but there's no similar uh, route in the UK, and the current director of the SFO is you know, he's famous for saying, uh, I'm a prosecutor, not a regulator. It's not my business to advise companies on what to do. Uh, they need to do what they think they need to do, take proper advice, and if they get it wrong, I'll prosecute them. There might, however, be one route that's open which is a relatively recent route, which might be if there is wrongdoing, and I'm stressing if, and I'm putting it in capital letters and marking it with red ink, uh, if there is any wrongdoing, then they might want to try and turn the discussions they're having with the Serious Fraud Office into a discussion about a deferred prosecution agreement. And that might be a way to try and crystallise liability, get some certainty, get a clear plan agreed, both with the SFO and with the courts, and enable them to move on. And that seems to be a feature of the Standard Bank case, for example, which was the UK's first DPA at, at the end of, of last year. And now, obviously, a DPA, it's like you know the old saying, a dog isn't for Christmas. Well, a DPA isn't just for a cor- corporate transaction, and it would require very serious thought before you even... Tried to enter into those negotiations. And of course, under the UK legislation, the corporation can't initiate those discussions. It has to be invited by the SFO to come and sit round the table. But uh, it, it is a challenging situation. And of course, for all of those organizations mm. involved, the first step has to be proper due diligence and uh, and working out exactly what's happened. Just as one final comment, made slightly more challenging by a recent court case, which we oughtn't to go into now around privilege, but privilege is a a moving feast in the the UK. And sharing uh, investigation reports with the potential acquirer may not be a good idea. So you may need to think about workarounds in that circumstance to avoid privilege being lost
1: that would be a very interesting development, Jonathan, that the parties could, uh, of course, with SFO initiation, sit together and craft out a solution to the specific problem of uh, unioil that then uh, perhaps could be guidance for the rest of the uh, compliance practitioners, uh, the compliance world. The Halliburton opinion, of course, there's a, the Foreign Practices Act, has a specific a provision which allows the government to give an opinion on a specific fact scenario called an opinion release. But under that fact pattern, Halliburton was not able to do, as you correctly noted, uh, sufficient pre-acquisition due diligence. So they were highly compressed post-acquisition uh, to uh, do a very thorough investigation, 30-, 60-, 90-day timeframe for high-, medium-, and low-risk uh, third-party agents. Turn that share that information with the, the government and the government agree, and then remediate as necessary. And the government agreed to, uh, under that fact scenario, not uh, uh, prosecute Halliburton for FCPA violations. So um, it was unique to that situation with Halliburton, but it was a solution that I heard Chuck DeRoss say uh, when he was—just uh, after he le- uh, left being the head of the FCPA unit, if you can't do it pre-diligence— excuse me, pre-acquisition, you have to compress your time frames post-acquisition. And that was really the reason for the very robust uh, requirements uh, that Halliburton agreed to. And if um, both AMEC and Wood could could craft or graft, uh, craft I guess would be the better word, uh, with the SFO and uh, judicial uh, input and oversight, a formula to deal with a specific fact situation. It could certainly uh, be very interesting and creative and give us some additional guidance um, for uh, this issue under the UK Bribery Act.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think the chances are probably less than 10 percent, but it would be an interesting thing if it happened.
1: So... um, There was a rumor, Jonathan, that um, uh, there's some sort of election coming up in the United Kingdom, and and, uh, I'm not quite sure (laughs) how true that rumor is, Uh, but I know Matt had uh, had really uh, put his uh, political editor hat on, and I think he had some questions for you. (laughs)
2: Well, yeah, sure. Jonathan, I just want to know, as our man in London, um, what is going on with these sudden new polls that Theresa May, the prime minister, you know, she may not have a cakewalk here with the election next week. And I, I thought she was going to cruise to a huge victory that would mean a clear mandate for whatever she wanted to do, including maybe reforms at the SFO um but now suddenly i see this might be down to the wire or a hung parliament or i don't know what's going on so so what's going on
0: yeah it's it is completely messy and and i do feel at the moment every time anyone mentions our election that i ought to hammer another nail into my own forehead because that seems to be the way that many of our politicians are behaving um i think i think it's it is difficult to call um i was on a I think one of the difficulties that we get in the UK, and we've talked about it before, is we have these echo chambers. So I was sat next to a guy I didn't know on the train last night who says, absolutely everyone in my social media timeline is saying Corbyn's going to win. Now, that's not what I think from where I'm sitting. But I think the difficulty we have is that the polls can be so radically wrong. I think most people, though, to use a sporting uh, phrase, think that Theresa May has the ability to clutch defeat out of the jaws of victory. It should have been an entire walkover for her, but I think she's taken a number of very serious missteps, perhaps the least serious of which, but let's comment on it since you raised it, is the proposed abolition of the SFO. Now, that's not really a surprise. We know that when Theresa May was Home Secretary and sort of responsible for the SFO, she didn't exactly see eye to eye. But uh, whether that, you know, not seeing eye to eye is sufficient enough to become a manifesto commitment, which is normally reserved for sort of serious promises that people, you know, care about, is, I think, questionable at, at, at least particularly after the SFO has had a rise in morale and something of a victory, you might say, with Rolls-Royce. The other questionable thing about timing actually does get back to oil. And again, wrong to go into all of the facts, and we probably haven't got time anyway. But there is a question mark over uh, saying that you have a commitment to abolish the SFO when one of the people involved in that investigation, and I don't say that they've committed any criminal acts or not, but let's just say one of those individuals whose door has been knocked on by the SFO has donated something north of a million dollars to Theresa May in part for this election campaign. And to be honest, Matt, this isn't throwing it back to you, but to be honest, that sort of activity I expect from your administration, but I don't expect from mine. Uh, you know, the only thing I have to say about uh,
2: the British election is I saw this week that at the top of the pop charts now is some parody song calling Theresa May a liar, liar. It's, I listened to it on iTunes. It's a pretty groovy tune, but I'm, I'm going to uh, not comment further on British politics.
0: I think, it's, I think it's banned from the BBC at the moment, that song. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you know, the, one of the great missteps, of course, was this t- televised debate. It'd be, I mean, we don't have the history of televised debates that you do in the US, but it's still, you know, it's only been going for two or three elections, but it's unheard of, really, for the leader of a major political party not to show up. Then to send somebody who very unfortunately had suffered the loss of her father 48 hours earlier instead because she was less busy wasn't a Mm. great idea. And then to uh, authorize or at least not prohibit your social media team from dissing everybody else who did take part and imply that they were cowards when you were the one that didn't show up is, you know, a stream of disasters after disasters. And, and it's unfortunate, really, that the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm no great fan of David Cameron, but but one thing David Cameron was quite good about, I think, as a former marketing man, was looking at mm. consistency of message, making sure that you weren't saying one thing with the right-hand side of your mouth and one with the left. And unfortunately, that's a skill that's, that's, that the Theresa May team seem perhaps to have to have lost
3: all right hey, uh, Jonathan this is uh, this is Mike Volkoff here and hi Mike what, what I, I what, question for you is uh, what I don't understand is why what's the politics of opposing the SFO what is the problem with the SFO and why is there one party that wants to merge it into the Ministry of Justice and what's the hope in doing? That, but what are they trying to accomplish, and you know why have they always been a lightning rod?
0: Yeah, um, they're not trying to merge into the Ministry of Justice. Constitutionally, okay. that's that's prohibited. So the okay. SFO has to be uh, an independent body. But they are. Um, Th- Theresa May has had this long-standing, I don't know, love affair. Would you call it with uh, this um, unification? of crime fighting bodies. And what she wants to do is is merge the SFO almost back where it came from. So so serious fraud was split off from the existing prosecution system, if you like, to enable there to be a multidisciplinary approach so that it could be lawyers and investigators and accountants working together. And I think to be neutral about it, Theresa May sort of wants to push the bodies together. And I guess she would say that that will give more energy to uh, lower-level financial crimes like money laundering, which can be an indicator of other criminal Um, offences. The other interesting thing from my point of view is that if corbyn were to become prime minister and, and that's a big capital you know a, a, a big capital if um who would then be making the decision that the home secretary candidate is somebody called diane abbott who now i'll slag off the labor party in the interest of balance would make uh I don't know, would make Kermit the Frog look like a genius. Um, uh-uh. And, and um, so I don't think she's of the uh, you know, intellectual wherewithal to make serious decisions about that. The person who is uh, very, very understanding of the, of the criminal uh, system and who I would rate very highly is Keir Starmer, who's the shadow Brexit minister. But Keir Starmer was the former director of public prosecutions. So if you like, the body, that uh, the head of the body that the SFO was split off from. So even if, um, and, and I reached out to Keir Starmer last night, by the way, just to see what his plans would be were he to be in a position of influence. I don't know that yet. But, um, but whatever happens, I think there's an interesting future for the SFO and and the other thing i can tell you for certain mike is we've already seen people jump ship you know if i'm yeah. in if i'm in public service in a body that could be abolished in a matter of weeks and a law firm comes and offers to triple or quadruple my salary then i'm not hanging around so the difficulty is is even if the sfo remains it might be that it remains, you know, with half the lawyers that it had a fortnight ago because of the uncertainty that this has all created.
1: Wow. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, let's move on to Jay Rosen. Jay, uh, you are now Mr. Monitors, and but you were formerly Mr. Translations. And you've come to the compliance world really from a different place than uh, the other panelists. And I was wondering from, I guess, more from a business perspective, from a business perspective, I wanted to get your thoughts on what the DOJ really put in front of everyone's mind in February with the evaluation of corporate compliance documents, the term operationalization. Uh, I know you talked about that a lot uh, when you were Mr. Translations, and you've talked about that some as uh, Mr. Monitors. But I was wondering if you might lead us in a kind of an exploration of, of what you see how you see compliance operationalizing into the business, really from your business hat perspective.
4: Great, great question, Tom, and uh, hello to everybody. Um, You know, as you point out, uh, majority of you guys are coming at this either from um, a legal perspective or journalistic perspective. And um, I almost stumbled into the FCPA world about, seven, eight years ago when I was working for a translation company. And you um, know, as I've told the story before, I was trying to look at how I could differentiate myself. And when I heard the four most beautiful letters in the world, FCPA, the uh, proverbial light bulb went off over my head. And um, one of the things that we were doing from the translation perspective is uh, helping companies uh, communicate globally with their workforce. And um, with the new evaluation, it is just such a great tool to bring up areas within your corporation where you can uh, operationalize the compliance function. And generally, the people that I was dealing with from a translation perspective were squarely sitting in the chief compliance officer's role. But one of the things we would see as we would roll out the process, doing the translations and then after that, sending the translated documents to uh, compliance ambassadors who are in each locale, uh, you started to get the feedback from the different uh, constituencies within that corporation. So whether it was HR, legal, internal audit, the controller's office, Um, You could really tell, depending on which company you were working with, you could have a very good idea about how um, well-entrenched and sophisticated their compliance program was in terms of how many rounds of edits you did and how early in the process the different constituencies were involved. So um, with some places, you could do a translation in four to six weeks, but it could take four to six months to actually roll out uh, an approved version of that um, document because you had so many different players who were involved and they really weren't incentivized to get their sign off. So that would be one or, one kind of um, outlier at the far end of the spectrum. And on the other side, you would have companies that really uh, just jumped on it, that there was a, a uh, culture of compliance there, and that these folks who were the compliance ambassadors in different uh, countries and different territories, they had done this process before. You could see it was a well-oiled machine. So those are kind of like the two different um, ends of the spectrum from the translation perspective. As we see it now from the monitoring perspective, you also really need to, you know, take that village. To kind of build your program and each of those um, I know we talk about the prongs of the evaluation, but if we want to talk about the prongs of the different internal departments at corporations. Um, As I said before, you know, HR pretty much has a pulse on everything from a personnel perspective. So, HR can really be a great ally to give you a heads up if there is a problem or if something isn't working well. So, they are good folks to get on your team to become compliance ambassadors. In terms of operationalizing your compliance program – or um, you know, operationalizing uh, an internal uh, evaluation or an assessment, internal audit really uh, sees how the machinery moves. And as they are out within the corporation, they are a great ally to use to um, do random testing and to see if. Uh, programs that have been put in place are actually working that way so they can give you an, an early warning side in terms of whether or not there are issues from ethics and compliance and then to look at the hard numbers when you go through the um, you know the accounting and the controlling function uh, you really can see if there's any types of uh, inconsistency on monthly billings or Uh, commission statements. So, um, you know, by using all that information and uh, now actually having a formal uh, tool to use, the evaluation, to look about how different, um, you know, different Groups in your company are you know, co- collaborating, it really gives you an opportunity either both from that language perspective, which was my uh, in- initial entry into the compliance world, and now working at it from a monitor perspective, either um, uh, a self monitoring exercise just to take a check of your organization's health and see how they're doing, or also a monitor that has been prescribed by some regulatory body.
1: So, Jay, I heard a term this morning uh, listening to a Harvard Business Review podcast, which was – Revenue generation and revenue extraction, and it was applied to the finance discipline, but it really gave me uh, got me to thinking about that uh, those phrases in terms of compliance. I don't think compliance would ever considered be considered uh, revenue extraction, but certainly uh, revenue enhancement or revenue generation. And I guess what I heard from you was there really are ways for compliance to move towards that model of uh, revenue generation by being a part of the business process. at at the, um, really the front lines tactical level. Did I get that right?
4: Yeah. And, um, you know, that always brings up the discussion of silos that you have within the corporation. And when you start to, you know, build these bridges within companies, you realize that there are folks out there who may be better handled for doing certain tasks. So, um, You know, in in the uh, series that you and Russ Berlin looked at this week, um, not only did you look at the folks who can be your allies and who can help you be more efficient because they're the subject matter experts and they might have uh, the better access to data. But you also looked at specific obstacles, which may pre- prevent people from actually uh, getting on the same page and working forward. And, and some of those things, you know, are just the KPIs and the key metrics. And if people are not incentivized to do compliance and operationalize compliance, then that might not happen. So part of that is going back and, you know, we've seen this with other companies taking a look at how uh, senior management is incentivized from an ethics and compliance perspective. So that's one part about kind of uh, breaking down the silos and making it worthwhile for different departments to participate and help operationalize your compliance so it can be a competitive advantage. And, you know, the the other part is really people tend to – you know, stay in their own little world. So as Russ talked about it, um, he served a lot of pizza in his days. And this is something that we consistently talk about when your CCO is visiting different plants or visiting different companies, that it's invaluable to get out on the front line and talk to people. But I think that, you know, that idea of pizza has to happen even more as we strive to operationalize these benefits within a corporation. The more and more opportunities that you have to work with folks who are outside your immediate discipline, uh, the better you can take their objective point of view and, you know, really take a look at how things are being done and trying to find a way to get rid of those folks who say, quote, it's always been done that way. So uh, if if you can kind of break through And, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with planning when you go back and when we talk about, you know, whether you're going to have three year horizons or five year horizons. But if the proper planning isn't done to really um, take the different functions and get them working together, then you really cannot hope to uh, achieve very great results. So a lot of it is is planning, changing corporate culture And then, you know, bringing in those subject matter experts who can help more on the revenue generation side. And whether or not there are initial tangible results, I think we all believe that by the operationalizing of ethics and compliance that companies will eventually get there.
1: Anyone have any questions for Jay? Okay, on to Mike Volkoff. Mike, uh, welcome, and uh, greeting us today from uh, hopefully sunny, still sunny Sicily. Um, beautiful, beautiful Sicily. Thank you. Thank you for that visual. Um, <laughs> the, uh, we had a couple of interesting uh, legal issues that I wanted you to, to maybe lead a discussion around. The first one was you you wrote about a uh, FinCEN enforcement action involving Thomas Hayter a former uh, chief compliance officer at MoneyGram, and uh, you, you really didn't think it uh, negatively impacted personal liability of CCOs. And then second, we had an uh, oral argument a little bit earlier this year in a uh, former Austin executive's case, a fellow named uh, Lawrence Hoskins, and he had objected to um, DOJ or, I guess, U.S. government jurisdiction over him. Um, and uh, so I was just wondering if, uh, what you might think about those two cases.
3: Well, yep. Let's start first with the MoneyGram Chief Compliance Officer Enforcement Action. First off, uh, I think it's important to consider that it was a civil enforcement action, not a a criminal. Uh, It's still the the money that he had to pay in this case was a $250,000 civil penalty. But this was after years, uh, you know, sort of negotiation and, and back and forth. And he also... Uh, has a three year bar from serving as a compliance officer at a any money transmission business. but um, I guess you know in general, when I uh, see uh, enforcement actions against chief compliance officers, i I, I don't have the same uh, sort of uh, fear and that this is going to you know put uh, at risk chief compliance officers because usually their behavior, is uh, so bad uh, that, um, you know, frankly, I, I have no problem usually with uh, the enforcement action that occurs. So, I mean, in the MoneyGram case, what to me was interesting, there were three sort of sets of facts that got Hayter, uh, and I hate, to, you know, he, first off, he didn't have a good name as a defendant, uh, being called Hayter. Um, but uh, the first... There were sort of three sets of facts that got him into trouble. Um, MoneyGram had a serious problem with fraud and agents, uh, you know, who would be involved in um, committing fraud against uh, individuals and customers uh, and stealing money, and uh, in basically controlling their third parties was just a, a major problem for them. So in uh, – in, and this tells you how old the case this is. In 2006, 2007, um, MoneyGram's fraud department proposed that they implement a policy for terminating agents and outlets that were uh, at a high risk of fraud. Uh, Hayter was given a proposed policy, um, but he not, basically failed to act on it because of objections from the sales department. Then in 2007, there were a number of outlets uh, in Canada that the fraud department wanted to cancel because basically a small group of outlets were responsible for approximately 60% of all the fraud occurring in Canada involving MoneyGram uh, during a six-month period. Um, they also had specific risk characteristics that Hayter and other members of the Fraud and Compliance Department recognized uh, were sort of strong red flags that the outlets were involved in fraud. So I mean, and uh, I mean, just to show you how bad this was, one operator, for example, ended up pleading guilty to criminal fraud, and uh, as a result of sort of this internal investigation and the company's investigation. So again, Hader, knowing all this, failed to act with regard to terminating any of these agents or outlets. Um, And again, he responded to the opposition, you know, he claimed there was the opposition from the sales department. Then – and, you know, look, two of those – I mean I guess we could get into a discussion as to, you know, exercising discretion and was this inappropriate or, you know, whatever. But the third uh, allegation against him was that he actually deliberately structured the AML program that MoneyGram eventually put in in 2007. Uh, and to restrict the analysts' access to critical information that was used to conduct fraud analyses um, and uh, restricted their access to information so they couldn't identify individual outlets like they had done in uh, prior times where there was indications of fraud. Um, and as a result of that, Uh, they were not able to generate information that would lead to the filing of suspicious activity reports. And he was aware of that and knew what he was doing. And there were numerous entities for which, as a result of this policy that he put in, they did not file uh, SARS or suspicious activity reports for those entities. Um, So, you know, when you combine all of this, it's really hard to defend – uh haters conduct uh remembering that it's a civil penalty not a criminal penalty uh you know his the government's burden of proof here is a preponderance of the evidence um and it's not i really didn't sympathize that much with with haters uh, situation um you know and i do think that when a you know to maintain credibility and i guess this is my sort of bottom line is if a chief compliance officer breaks the law be a criminal or civil um, you know they should be prosecuted on the other hand uh i think we had a new york regu- regulation at one time where uh they were re- going to require chief compliance officers to certify as to aml programs and uh, the sufficiency and the reasonableness of the aml program and then the idea was, well, if it doesn't work out, we'll prosecute the CCO, the chief compliance officer for false certification. That I had more trouble with. When you're making the chief compliance officer responsible for something that they don't have control over, in other words, access to resources, ability to move people and money and ideas and technology around, uh, I have a problem when it gets to that. But here where you had an actor conduct that was pretty blatant uh, I don't really have any problem with that so but I think it's much more controversial people think there's a a chilling effect from these types of prosecutions um, but I think the chief compliance officers just like anybody else have to become big boys and big girls and uh, you know and deal with these uh, kinds of issues and and do a good job with it but I'm curious if anybody else feels differently but that's sort of my take on that case
2: Oh, uh, Mike, I this is Matt here. And I do have a a comment a question, I guess. I agree with you one hundred percent that um you know, when you are as grossly negligent as hater seems to have been, or if you are complicit in misconduct, like what do you think is going to happen, people? Um, you should be held liable if that's it. And I saw a study somewhere earlier today that, Fears about chief compliance officer liability are declining, which I think they should because I also agree with you that this is a bit overblown. But I, what caught my eye was that separately this past month in May, the FDIC settled charges against the compliance officer of Banamex USA – which is the U.S. subsidiary of the Mexican subsidiary of a division of Citigroup, if I'm remembering my org chart correctly. But this compliance officer, who was not named, um, he's been barred from the industry and had to pay a $70,000 fine. I'm not entirely clear on what the case was there, but I was struck that, okay, that does actually seem like two compliance officers in a row in relatively quick succession. I I was kind of jolted by that, but I'm just curious if anybody knew any of the details about that Banamex case.
3: I I don't know the facts of that case, but, you know, just to pile on to the concern area, I have seen cases at the SEC where, uh, you know, compliance officers are held liable um, for, you know, I would say uh, facts that are far less strong, you know, far less egregious than like the hater case in the FDIC matter in Banamax. I mean, I know that it was a pretty egregious case in terms of the uh, the level and amount, and people actually thought that Banamax uh, got, got off very lightly given the conduct, but um. You have to be careful. I agree with you because I've seen cases at the SEC that are sort of, you know, you scratch your head a little bit in terms of liability and holding people responsible as a compliant, you know chief compliance officer at an investment bank or or whatnot. But um, it's definitely something to keep uh, in in you know keep on top of. But then you know then you run into the situation like the Volkswagen Chief Compliance officer who was absolutely, you know, sitting in jail in Miami right now, or up in Michigan now, you know, awaiting trial when, you know, they were, you know, active participants in the criminal uh, conspiracy. And I, nobody questions that, I don't think. But, um, you know, we I think the regulatory, imp- the regulatory enforcement issues are, they tend to be a lot closer. I mean, this one I didn't think was that close, but the FDIC, the SEC, and you know we may see some in the CFTC and others uh, that have beefed up their ranks a little bit lately. So it's something like to definitely a, stay on top of. Uh,
0: as a, as a, just a very brief anecdote, um, back in 2015, the UK financial regulator uh, fined the Bank of Beirut, and they also fined two individuals, a guy called Anthony Wills who was the former compliance officer, and Michael Aylin, who was the internal auditor. And I wrote a blog on it uh, when it came out. And I received a call almost immediately afterwards from a guy who said, I'm Anthony Wills. Uh, Do I need a lawyer to speak to you? And I said, depends what you're going to say. And he said, look, I don't want to say anything other than can I meet you for coffee? And tell you how my life has changed and it was it really was a fascinating coffee meeting with him and to Matt's point it's not just whether a compliance officer is fined and in this case the monetary penalty wasn't great it's the fact that they're almost unemployable certainly they can't go back to the you know original job they had they can't go back to the to working for a regulated entity under the same regulator very easily, so I, I think in some respects prosecutors need to think carefully about you know this sort of career-limiting involvement of compliance officers. I don't know the full facts of the uh, of the Wills case. I obviously know what the FCA made public. I know what Mr. Wills said to me, which may be something that the FCA would. Would dispute, but th- these I think are very challenging cases, and and you'd hope that um, prosecutors don't just jump on the compliance officer because he's the near guy rather than the right guy. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree
1: completely. Here, here. So, Mike, here's uh, here's my concern with this case that I saw perhaps the facts. Uh, not quite as egregious as you or Matt. And it seemed to me that, uh, and even if they were uh, more egregious along the lines that uh, you guys characterize them, I, I see this moving towards uh, a standard of negligence. Now, I didn't see negligence here. I agree with Matt if there it uh, was closer to gross negligence. But as we, you know, being good lawyers, we have to always think about the slippery slope. And uh, it may get us little bitty steps there, but it seems to me to be moving in a direction where a chief compliance officer could be held at least civilly liable for uh, engaging in a negligent act, either in the in the design, creation, or implementation of a compliance program.
3: Well, I look. I think you raise a very good point because think about all the information that comes into a chief compliance officer and assuming you have a robust sort of reporting system and information system to me making them uh, you know accountable for everything that comes across their desk is really almost unrealistic given the fact that they don't have you know rarely do they have sufficient resources to do their job uh and and time and attention to do that um, you know, so I, I I agree with you on that. We don't want to see a negligence standard because, you know, frankly, uh, you know, we'll get prosecuted as compliance practitioners. Um, you know, it's there are a lot of things that there's a lot of information that can, you know, sort of go the other way, and if we're going to start saying negligence or you know, gross negligence and not you know provide real meat to the standard of what gross negligence is. Um, You know, like for example, in the hater case, would you say that one of those three, you know, uh, sort of set of events would be sufficient to to prosecute the person? I hope not, Um, you know, because I think then you are going towards uh, that. And you're right, there's a slippery slope here and you know this gets to and not to break out another soapbox here but it gets to another point that i feel is really important for the compliance profession is to is to try to start to define professional standards for what they do And I know it's really hard to do that because compliance officers work in different ways in different organizations, but the the profession has to come together and do something there because I think that's the way that you can start to set out what a reasonable, you know, sort of chief compliance officer can do in certain situations. And my last point on that, and then I'll, I'll, I'll defer to you guys, is I've seen too many situations in criminal investigations where the person who is first or second to get blamed is usually the general counsel or the chief compliance officer because they touched or were near the information that was, you know, relevant because uh, something blew up from that, you know, the way they handled the third party. They may have reviewed something in the process. And I've seen too many super, you know, sort of senior executives and even board members to save themselves will start pointing the finger at the general counsel or the CCO, uh, you know, and say, look, it was their fault. So we've got to provide more protection for the profession itself in some way or to promote that idea. And I think your slippery slope argument is part of that, but I just think we need to to define more, you know, what, What professional standards should apply, and what are they really responsible for? They can't be responsible for the entire behavior of the company.
1: So, Mike, why don't we save uh, Hoskins' discussion for another day and just go directly into rants? And you were about to start on one, so you just want to continue on on that tack, Mike? Uh
3: well, my, uh, I do have, uh, that is, it actually is, is one of my rants, uh, that I, I do believe that the compliance profession has grown in such a way, um, and uh, I don't want to see the momentum lost, uh, and I think the compliance profession has to become, as I would say, more professional. In terms of setting out standards for conduct, and I can't think of better people to do it than the compliance profession itself, because they're the ones who are helping people to think about ethics and compliance as well. Um, so my rant is, you know, let's uh, at the SCCE, you know, the next meeting of the uh, group, let's let's start to push this idea and get, you know, some of the we have great thinkers you know, all of you folks who are attending here and uh, and get some ideas on paper and and start to circulate them and, and get some professional standards uh, in place. And I don't think it's that hard, I guess, but, you know, if lawyers can do it, and we know how much <laughs> lawyers abide by their professional standards, uh, chief compliance officers can do it.
1: So that's my rant. Jay Rosen, you got a rant for us?
4: Uh, I'm looking forward to June eighth. Like, I'll say that that'll be my
1: rant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, fair enough. Uh,
0: Jonathan Armstrong. I think I've probably ranted enough. I wonder if I could have a wish—a wish that we could have better quality politicians on both sides of the Atlantic.
1: That's that definitely qualifies as a rant. And our rested <laughs> rest left-wing Cambridgeite matt kelly's always good for a rant so what do you have for us today matt
2: well yeah so i have two and i'm going to keep them brief i don't one is a rant another one is just an interesting item for the compliance radar screen Uh, but i did want to raise a point about climate change uh, in this day after donald trump announced that the united states will withdraw from the paris agreement Um, that is interesting and i think compliance officers will see plenty of consequences that will touch them in that already several states have said that they're going to adopt Paris level standards anyways. Um, I could foresee other nations imposing carbon tariffs on corporations from the U.S., uh, all sorts of complications because as the U.S. abdicates Setting some sort of a federal stance on climate change and how we would handle environmental regulation. Um, then I think that others are going to try and fill the void. And really, the most important the thing that did happen this week was more the shareholders at ExxonMobil voting against the board's wishes to say, Yes, Exxon, we really do want you to disclose much more about the impact of climate change on your business. So we're going to see more shareholder activists. We're going to see more local governments. We're going to see more foreign governments trying to fill the vacuum that the Trump administration has decided to create. Uh, So that's going to be, I think, something that will have many more implications than certainly Donald Trump understood or even that we here today do understand for compliance and corporate governance is going to be a whole lot of fun there. So that is my one rant. The other thing that I did want to call out just for the public consideration, I wanted to just raise um, the point about Hui Chen, the Justice Department's Compliance Mm -hmm. counsel, who has started uh, tweeting um, on social media and making some comments on LinkedIn in a very provocative way. Uh, I should say foremost, I have never met Hui Chen personally. I do not know her, and I personally also agree with a fair number of the tweets she is saying. But her tweets are very, very thinly disguised shots at the ethical misconduct we are seeing flowing out of the Trump administration, specifically the Oval Office and the West Wing. Really rather unusual to see a sitting Justice Department employee make these kind of statements They are very much in the spirit of good tone at the top and ethical conduct. So as a compliance professional, I agree with most of what she is saying, but I'm rather astonished that she would she'd have the nerve to go out and say it. I wonder if that means she's looking to raise her profile before she goes back to the private sector someday. I don't know, but she is worth following on Twitter because, wow, man, she throws some zingers out there.
0: Well, I should perhaps add, Matt, that I, I do know, and, and I'm sort of not surprised at the tone of the tweets knowing her, but I am surprised at the tone of the tweets given where she's sitting. Uh, I, I think she's a great character, a fun lunch companion, and the tweets certainly reflect that, don't they?
2: Uh, You know, the the compliance Twitterverse is much more rich and vibrant with having her in there. So I'm glad she's tweeting. It's just there, worth reading if you're a compliance professional. I think she's at Kui Chen Ethics on Twitter.
1: Well, gentlemen, as always, this has just been a ton of fun, and uh, I look forward to uh, continuing the roundtable discussion.
2: Thank you. Thank
1: you. Have a great weekend.